Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll move on this listener right now in your gentle, loving, powerful, and merciful way as they listen to this message from All Nations Church in Tallahassee. Amen. We've had a great week with our family. We've had three of our kids here and grandkids this week. Had a great time with them. That little girl was Harper that popped into the video there, our youngest granddaughter. They returned home yesterday. Katie and Philip, our youngest daughter and her husband, went back to Oklahoma City yesterday. But this morning, Philip and Michelle are here with us as well. I must have said something wrong. I have no idea what it was, but they're going to tell me here in just a minute. Katie and Charles, is that correct? All right. Our, young, our youngest daughter went back to Oklahoma City. I don't know what I said. have no idea. Don't hold it against me. All right. I'm sleep deprived because I've had grandkids for seven days. All of you have grandkids. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. So my son Philip is coming today. He's going to minister God's word to us. Philip and Michelle. Michelle, would you stand? Tyler and Mason are right here. Stand up, boys. Let them see you. Are right here on the front row with Yvonne. And they're the senior pastors at Fossil Creek Community Church in Fort Worth, Texas. Philip's been there since 2008 as the children's pastor. And then six years ago, he became the lead pastor at Fossil Creek. He's doing a phenomenal job. I tell him frequently, you're the best preacher in the Assemblies of God. So watch out. They're going to be coming after you very, very soon. Philip, come this morning. Would you make him feel welcome right here at All Nations Church? Bless you, son. Thanks for being here today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I try not to get involved in internal politics when I go, uh, when I'm invited to speak at different churches. So I won't tell you which way I want you to vote on the save it or shave it, but I will tell you, I'm so excited that you guys are doing this as a fundraiser to plant churches uh, in Europe and around the world. I'm excited to be a part of a, of a larger kingdom of God. You know, a lot of times it's easy for us to think that the kingdom of God merely exists inside the four walls of our church. But I want you to understand that the kingdom of God is much bigger and much more powerful and much more motivating than we have ever anticipated or imagined. So I'm thankful for you guys, for your vision, for uh, the, the beacon of hope that you are here in Tallahassee. Well, today I'm going to take you to Mark chapter 7. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me. Mark chapter 7. We're going to read the first few verses together near the beginning of my time with you this morning. Today I want to talk to you about worship in the life of the believer. Now I know oftentimes when we talk about worship, we often think of the, the first few minutes of our services that we spend together, or perhaps we think about a concert that we go to, or maybe an act of service that we do. But what I want you to understand this morning, what we're going to discover in Mark chapter 7, is that worship is so much more than a song, or so much more than an event, or so much more than a worship conference. Worship is a lifestyle. And if we don't figure out how to make it our lifestyle, then it's never going to impact the world outside of this church. It's never going to change anything. And really, the point of being a Christian is not to stay the same as I was yesterday. The point of being a Christian is that Christ is continually changing and remolding and remaking to invite me into the next phase of this journey that I have with him. I'm going to take you to Mark chapter 7 this morning where, where Jesus is dealing with some pretty heavy issues. He's been doing some miraculous things. In fact, and if you're perhaps you're very early in Christianity and you're just starting out trying to figure out where you're going to start reading this, this huge Bible at, right? You, do you start at the beginning? Do you start at the end so you know how it ends? Do, where do you start at this thing? I always recommend starting the book of Mark. Mark is extremely short and it has one of my favorite words. Over and over again, Mark says the word immediately. 
That means it goes very quickly. You can get through that whole book in, in just a matter of an hour or two just by sitting down and reading it. So Mark chapter 7, Jesus is dealing with some pretty big things here. He's in front of his disciples and he's about to perform another uh, grand teaching there in front of them when all of a sudden something occurs. Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 8 says this. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Verse 3, it's in parentheses in my Bible, probably in yours too. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, of pitchers, and of kettles. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He, meaning Jesus, he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Let's pray together. Lord God, we invite your spirit into our hearts in this moment. God, we invite the Holy Spirit to do the work that only you can do, the convicting acts that, that only you can perform, Jesus. God, in this moment, we lay our lives bare before your word. We ask, Jesus, that though you are always faithful to forgive us, we ask, God, that you would first show us where we need to be forgiven. God, look at our lives of worship. Perhaps we've made it a song. Perhaps we've made it an event. Perhaps we've made it a concert or a, a convention. God, but most importantly, we pray that worship would be our lifestyle. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, with, with COVID-19, I know when, when we read the passage in Mark chapter 7, there's probably something that jumps out at you. It says the disciples ate their food without washing their hands. And I know when I read that, I was like, oh, holy cow, do they not know about this global pandemic that we're in the middle of, right? You're not supposed to eat anything without washing your hands. You're not, even, you're not supposed to do anything without washing your hands. I can't even look at my own kids without washing my hands is what the CDC has told me, right? If I turn around this way, oh, got to wash my hands now before I can go to the next thing. We're in the middle of this thing, right? And so when we read a passage that says that the disciples ate without washing their hands, it's easy for us to say, well, the Pharisees were right to try to convict them. But in order for us to understand what was happening in Mark chapter 7, you have to first understand that they weren't talking about washing their hands as we wash our hands. They were talking about a ceremonial washing. In fact, one of the, the theologians, I love this, I was researching Mark chapter 7, one of the theologians, one of the commentators, he said, you would have to first wash your hands to make them clean and then perform the ritual to make them spiritually clean. He made the point, he said, if you just did the spiritual washing, if you just did the ritual washing, your hands would be just as dirty, if not dirtier, than they were before. Because of all the processes, that went, it didn't actually clean your hands at all. So we have to kind of divorce ourselves from the Western 21st century mindset. And we have to go back to what was happening in Jesus' time. When the Pharisees showed up on, on the scene, they started telling him that he needed to do something that he wasn't good at or something that he refused to do, something that they thought they got him in. Now, the first thing that I want you to understand this morning, and I recognize this is a hard one for those of us that have been in Christianity and attending church for a long time, the first point that I want you to understand is that religious people look for faults while godly people look for teachable moments. Religious people look for faults while godly people look for teachable moments. 
In the very beginning of that passage, it says the Pharisees had come from Jerusalem. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, they had come from Jerusalem. Now, this is a representation, it is. It's a legal um, council that they were sent by. They were empowered by their leaders to go and check out the teachings of Jesus. Now, what they were doing is they were going to see, is Jesus really who he says he is, and is he doing what he says he said he's going to do? They go there not because they have sin in their hearts or not because they're trying to tear Jesus down, but because in that culture at that time, there were dozens, if not hundreds of people who were waiting on the Messiah and thought that they had found the Messiah. So in order to protect their people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they traveled out to where Jesus was and they started investigating what Jesus was doing. Now, I'll tell you, that was probably a good thing. Honestly, us 21st century Christians in the, in the Pentecostal movement, we could do a little more with investigating the claims before we jump on behind someone. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's not you. But we could deal with a little more, hey, let's go check and see if that's in the word of God before we jump behind that person and call them our next Messiah. So they weren't doing anything inherently wrong. But when they got to Jesus and they started investigating his claims, what did they point out was his, was his fault? What they pointed out was that he didn't wash his hands according to the rules that their ancestors had passed down to them. The Pharisees were trying to convict Jesus for a lack of tradition, not for a lack of ministry, not for a lack of love, not for a lack of godliness, but for a lack of tradition. They were ready to throw him out and say, he can't be the one that we have waited on. They were giving everything up. They were evaluating Jesus by the word of tradition instead of evaluating him based on God's word. They threw the baby out with the bathwater. They missed it completely. Because they were so intent on proving that Jesus couldn't be who he said he was. But I love how Jesus responds to them. He doesn't respond to their negative outlook with condemnation. Instead, he responds by recognizing this as a teachable moment. Now, it's a hard teachable moment. And the words that he's going to say to the Pharisees are pretty harsh, but recognize some people are a little more knuckleheaded than other people. I never want Jesus to call me a hypocrite. But you know what? If Jesus calling me a hypocrite keeps me from hell, call me a hypocrite every day, twice on Sunday. Some people need a little bit of a knock in the head. And that's exactly what Jesus does to the Pharisees here. He points out their negative behavior so that they can begin to understand they've traded in what God has called them to for what they have chosen to accept. You know, I think that when it comes to discipleship, the Pharisees had it completely wrong. Because instead of training their children and their disciples what it meant to be a good follower of God, they were training them what it meant to follow all the rules that the church had created. They were finding all the things that made us look like Christians without actually having to be Christians, without any heart change taking place. You know, I think if we understand discipleship correctly, we're supposed to understand that it's supposed to change something inside of us. It's part of our worship. Becoming closer to Jesus is part of our worship. You know, my, my two boys, they're here with us today, Mason and Tyler. They're in third and fourth grade. And at our church, they attend a discipleship class with, with two teachers uh, who have been teaching at our church for, I think they're close to 30 years now in this one class. They attend Royal Rangers on Wednesday night. And, and they've had great teachers their entire time. But something changed in the last year where all of a sudden their teachers really started caring like, like about really developing them in discipleship. So they started getting very creative and they started taking steps. A few weeks ago, I'll give you an example. A few weeks ago, I came out of church on a Sunday morning. We had just had our, our big service and everything was over and we were packing up and getting ready to go for lunch. And 
we're walking past our office entrance, and as I walk past the office entrance, I notice that there's chalk all down the sidewalk beside my office. And I turned to Michelle and I said, what on earth? Someone came up here and like, like drew chalk. I didn't look at what it said. They just, they drew chalk all over the side of the church. That is such a strange thing. And my two kids, they just started laughing. They thought it was hilarious. They said, dad, we did that in Sunday school and you have to clean it up now. They thought it was hilarious. But here's the deal. They were learning about, about the man that Jesus lowered, or the man that was lowered down in front of Jesus and how Jesus healed him and how Jesus touched that paralytic man. Just a couple weeks ago, they were learning about 1 Corinthians 13. And if you know 1 Corinthians 13, you know that it's one of those passages that's a little bit hard to memorize. So what their teachers did is they blew up balloons and they put uh, parts of 1 Corinthians 13, single words from 1 Corinthians 13 inside of the balloons. And then as they went through their lesson, they got to pop a balloon and whatever word was on the inside, they got to act out that word. And in doing so, I asked the kids, I said, what did you learn from 1 Corinthians 13? And they started quoting 1 Corinthians 13 back to me. And I looked at them and I thought, oh my goodness, I had to go through Bible college and about 10 weddings before I figured out how to quote 1 Corinthians 13. You guys are figuring this out in third and fourth grade. Why? Because discipleship is more than just a lecture followed by a piece of bubble gum. Discipleship is about heart change. Discipleship is about looking for teachable moments. And I believe that if we look for the teachable moments, we're going to change someone's life forever. It's why it's so important that you guys bring your kids to church. It's why it's so important to get your teens in church with you. Because if we don't impact their lives when they're young, then they're not going to be impacted later on. If they don't catch it now, they're not going to catch it. Or they're going to have to go through a terrible time before they finally catch it. My dad said I used to be a children's pastor before I was the lead pastor at our church. And I would get so frustrated with some of those parents. And they would say, well, I didn't bring my kids to church today because they didn't want to come. And I'm like, do you make them go to school on Monday? Because they probably don't want to do that either. Do you make them eat vegetables? I know they don't want to do that. I've talked to them. I took them to kids camp and I fed them ice cream for seven days straight because I could. They're not my kid. See, if we're to understand discipleship, we have to understand that we're constantly looking for teachable moments. We're constantly looking for the calling that God has placed onto our lives. But the problem is that we do far more harm to the kingdom of God with how we interact with people when our guard is down than how we interact with people in the inside of the church. See, our worship doesn't stop when you walk outside of these doors. Discipleship doesn't stop when you walk outside of these doors. It continues on, and what you do with people outside of this church is going to matter far more to the kingdom of God than whether you lifted your hands and worship in this room. Amen. What Jesus was talking to the, the Pharisees about was that they had missed who Jesus was. They could have gone back to Jerusalem and reported back on the deep teachings of Jesus. They could have gone back and reported on the miracles that were occurring. Instead, they chose to focus on Jesus violating the tradition of hand washing. And that was what they were going to take back to Jerusalem. You know, I wonder, I wonder what your worship looks like. Does it look like the Pharisees? Or we try to make it about something that, that matches our version of what a Christian should look like? Or do we try to make it like Jesus, where we say, whatever the teachable moment is, we're going to find a way to get to that person in this time, in this space. Are we flexible in our worship? Or are we so rigid in it that we say, well, if you don't align with me and if you don't align with God, then you're missing it completely. Is your worship a vibrant, alive, and engaging act with God? Or is your worship dry, brittle, and as soon as the enemy comes, it's going to crumble into dust and disappear? 
And I would tell you if the second one sounds more like where you're at today, then you need to do something to change or else you are going to dry and crumble and blow away when the winds come. I told you the worship is a lifestyle and I think that Jesus illustrates this perfectly in verses 6 and 7 of Mark chapter 7. Because what Jesus does is he doesn't just tell them they're wrong, he uses the Bible to show them that they're wrong. These men who are scholars, who are experts on the law, Jesus takes them back and he says, look at what Isaiah says. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus uses the real words of scripture to respond to the oral tradition of the scribes. You know, I think when you face an, a problem in your life, it's a lot easier to come up with pithy little statements and things that make us feel better. But you know what really actually changes the situation? When we start using God's word to call on God's promises. Amen. When we start saying, Jesus, you told me in your word that you would protect me. You told me in your word that you would walk with me. You told me in your word that you were never going to abandon me. Where are you at, Jesus? And then be silent and wait for him. Because when we use the real words of Scripture to talk to God, all of a sudden something rearranges inside of us. See, Jesus knew the, the commands of God, and he knew the customs and the tradition. Jesus was a great Jewish man at that time. He knew all of the rules. It wasn't like they surprised him that they said, Jesus, you're supposed to do the ceremonial cleansing. He was like, wait, what? Hold on. No one ever taught me about this. No, Jesus knew. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he chose not to. Why? Because he was trying to lead them to an understanding that if the tradition is your only avenue of worship, then you've missed Jesus completely. You've missed God completely. If your only version of worship is coming to church for an hour or an hour and a half on Sunday morning, and then you check it off your list and you move on, then you've missed what God was calling you to. If your worship ends when the song ends, then you've missed what God is calling you to. In fact, I would say that you're probably leaning a little closer to where the Pharisees were, with lips that praise Jesus, but their hearts are far from him. You know, I, I went through a time where I was trying to really discern from God, and I was asking God, what is it that makes a person a good Christian? And I prayed, and I read his Bible, and I read books, and I, I, I did some deep study, and I was trying to figure out, what is it, you know, how do, we, how do we define this? It's kind of an ethereal term, right? A good Christian. How do we define a good Christian? It was in that time of study that I'm a pastor at a church, and it was in that time of study that I had to go do one of my tasks. And one of my tasks is one of our old, when one of our older members is about to pass away, I will go to their house and I'll visit them in the last few days of their hospice time. During that time when I was trying to decide what does it mean to be a good Christian, I happened to get a call that one of our older members was very near death and I needed to go and visit with them and talk with them, talk with their family, do some final things, make some plans. I went to the room and and as I walked in the room, the person was already unconscious completely. They were on a, a breathing apparatus. They were, you know, very near death. I'd been there many times, and I recognized this is, this is very close to the end. I went in, and it's my tradition that even if the family's in the room, I just walk up to the person, I grab their hand, and I always ask them, even though I can't usually respond, I grab their hand, and I say, can I pray for you? And this person, when I walked up close enough to their bed, I grabbed their hand, and as I bent down to say, can I pray for you, I noticed... They were talking. And I thought, oh my goodness, let me, let me stop for a second before I talk and let me listen to them. And I, I bent my ear a little bit closer and I started listening and I couldn't really make it out. So I listened really intently and really focused hard. And I realized what they were doing is they were singing hymns and singing songs and praying to Jesus. 
And I looked at them and I was like, man, this person is, I thought they were already completely unconscious. They're on a breathing machine. They're on all this stuff. I've been told they're very near death, but here they are laying in their bed, eyes closed, singing songs to Jesus and praying to Jesus. Sometimes just saying Jesus over and over again. And it was during that time and I was asking God, what does it mean to be a good Christian? And all of a sudden it was like God dropped something in my heart and I realized that, you know, we don't get to the point where we're at the end of our lives where we're praying and singing songs about Jesus because we decided five minutes before then to pray and sing songs about Jesus. We get there because we decided a long time ago that worship was going to be part of our lives. We get there because when we were 14, 15, 16 years old, something shifted inside of our hearts and we said, I can't live this life without Jesus on my side. We get there because when we were 29, 30 years old and we were living a life that was marked by drugs, alcohol, and addiction to everything else, we said, I don't want to live the life that's headed me towards hell. I don't want to live the life that's going to put me in the grave before I'm supposed to go in the grave. I want to live a life that's marked by coming out of the grave and that only comes from Jesus. We get there when we're 45, 50 years old and we made some terrible mistakes in our businesses and maybe we've cheated some things and maybe we've stolen some things and we say, if I continue to live this way, then it's not going to work out well for me. And so we shift something inside of us and we say, God, if you can take care of me, I will follow after you forever on. You don't get there by being 75 years old. You get there at the time when you're 14, when you're 29, then when you're 45. That's how you make worship a lifestyle. How do we make sure that we're not using our lips to praise Jesus, but our hearts are empty from Him? We fill our hearts with Jesus. I don't want to be like the Pharisees. I don't want to be doing the trappings of being a pastor. I don't want to be doing the the job of being a Christian, but yet have no love inside of me, because if that's what it is, then this whole thing is useless and pointless. Man, I might as well go play golf on a Sunday morning if that's what we're doing. If we're just here to pat ourselves on the back, check one more thing off our list and say, I'm a good Christian now, man, go, go find something else to do. But if you're here about Jesus, and if you're here and you're serious about becoming better, becoming different, being a marked person who was once dead, not brought back to life, then I can show you what God says. He says that you have to prioritize Him in every aspect of your life. Now, for me, that meant I had to change some things in my life. I had to, it meant that I had to put God's word into my life at times when I didn't have God's word in my life. One of the things that I started doing is, is when I would go for a run in the mornings, instead of turning on music or instead of turning on a podcast, I have an app on my phone that just reads the Bible to me. And it's actually a pretty cool app that I use. And, and in the app, it's, it's this guy who reads the Bible to me and he has a really thick accent. He actually sounds like Black Panther. That's why I picked it because it sounds like Black Panther's reading the Bible to me. And it has, it has music behind it and the drums are going and Black Panther's reading the Bible and it makes me run further and I'm getting filled up with the word of God. And when I finish my run, I'm really tired, but I'm excited because now I know more about God just from my, my time of exercising. Maybe for you, it means you need to turn off the radio in your car. You need to spend some time just listening to Jesus. Saying, God, I don't know what you want to say to me, but for the next 15 minutes between my office and my house, you got me. Whatever you want. I promise I'm not going to cuss at the car that cuts me off. Just tell me what you want to tell me. So you got to put Jesus in where perhaps Jesus has not been before. Things that we've kept apart from him. Things that we've kept separated from him. You know, for some of us, I've talked about listening. For some of us, we need to change our devotional time. Because maybe your devotional time has been filled with reading the Word of God for a little while, shutting your Bible and said, well, I've done it for today. Can I challenge you, if that's you, if you normally read a book or read a Bible when you 
when you do your devotional time, I'm going to challenge you, instead of just closing it and moving on with your day, close it and then sit quietly for five minutes. And just say, God, what do you want to tell me? Just shut it and set it aside. What do you want to tell me? Set a timer on your phone if you have to. This is how I started having to do it. I just set a timer on my phone, and I said, you know, when the timer goes off, I was done. And it was amazing, because the longer I did it, the longer I wanted to set that timer for. And then it got to the point where the timer would go off, and I'd say, well, just five more minutes. And I'd snooze the timer and set it off to the side. Nine more minutes is actually what it was. I'd snooze it and set it off to the side. See, if we want to make worship a lifestyle, we have to actually make some decisions about it. We have to make some decisions that are going to make our lives different. It doesn't just happen. You're not going to magically wake up one morning and say, man, I love Jesus so much more today. It's going to happen because we make some intentional decisions to walk away from tradition and to walk towards Jesus. You know, I, I loved, as you guys were, were engaging in worship today, I loved it. I, I was sitting in the front, so I couldn't turn around too much, but I loved even the worship service, engaging in worship, and how exciting it was, and, and how ready we're, we were to go after Jesus. You know, I recognize that if we are going to be good followers of Jesus when it comes to worship, we have to make a decision that we're not going to be thermostats of what's going on in the room. We're, going to, or we're not going to be thermometers of what's going on in the room. We're going to be thermostats of what's going on in the room. That's it. Do you know the difference? A thermometer can tell you when it's cold outside. A thermostat can make it warmer. A thermostat can tell you when maybe I'm just not feeling worship today. Or a thermometer can tell you when maybe I'm not feeling worship today. A thermostat changes it and says, I'm going to feel worship no matter what today. I'm still going to lift my hands. I'm still going to praise Jesus. I'm still going to lean into this thing. See, I think the, the world has plenty of thermometers. It, we have a million, I mean, watch the news and you'll see a million thermometers on top of the news, right? They can tell you all the things that are wrong with the world and all the th reasons that nothing's ever going to work out. But you know what the world is craving and lacking? It's craving people who will be thermostats. Who will say, it's not about what I feel, it's about who I serve. And when I lean into Jesus, all of a sudden something shifts inside and it stops being about what I want, it starts being about what He wants. And if what He wants is bigger than I want, then I better grab onto what He's got. Because I'm not going to make it without Him. Be a thermostat. Mark chapter 7, verse 8, my last point for you today. It's probably the hardest question that I have in this entire sermon and passage. My question to you today is, who is watching? Who is watching? Whether you worship and whether you make worship a lifestyle. Who's watching? Mark 7 verse 8 says it this way, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. What Jesus is convicting the Pharisees of doing is negating God's word and amplifying their own words. In other words, we make ourselves on the high pedestal and we put God's word on the low pedestal. Sure, it's still on the pedestal, but it's not as important as what we say, as our human traditions, as our desires of what we want. It's, it's powerful language that Jesus uses here. They've given up on the words of God, the commands of God, and they're holding on instead to human tradition. I, when I read this passage, it immediately makes me think of, of decisions that, that kids make wrong sometimes. Right? Have you ever been with, with not an older kid, but like a little kid, like a toddler? You ever been with a toddler and they have something really good in their hand, like an ice cream cone? And they're walking along the road and all of a sudden they see a really shiny rock and they let go of the ice cream cone and they lean over and pick up the rock. And you're like, that was an ice cream cone. Why do you want a shiny rock? You had an ice cream cone. 
We did that many times in our house. We, we've dealt with that many times where we give up something good to be able to get something that maybe is not so good that's not going to be so happy. But that's what Jesus is, is showing the Pharisees here is that they're acting like children. They're dropping their ice cream cone to pick up a rock on the ground. See, it was a moment that the disciples' faith could have been crumbled that we find in Mark chapter 7. The rulers, the teachers, the smart people in society came to Jesus and they said, why aren't you following the rules? But they didn't say, why aren't you following the rules? They said, why aren't your disciples following the rules? See, the Pharisees knew who they were trying to get to. They weren't trying to get to Jesus. They were trying to get to the followers of Jesus. They said, Jesus, why are your disciples not washing their hands before they eat the food? This is a moment when their faith could have been crumbled because if Jesus doesn't respond correctly, perhaps they say, well, the Pharisees know more about God than he does. So Jesus responds and he invites them into a conversation. And while Jesus responds with some harsh words and some heavy things where he tells them you've let go of the commands of God and you're holding on to human traditions, I would posit and I would guess that Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, but he was talking for the disciples. He wasn't pulling the Pharisees off in a private little corner and saying, well, let's come over here and let's have a theological discussion about the importance of ceremonial cleansing. No, they confronted him publicly. Jesus is going to confront them publicly. And in front of the disciples, he tells them, you have given up on the commands of God to hang on to your human traditions. What Jesus is saying to the disciples, and it's something that we need to say today, is that there's always someone watching. What he shows is that there's always someone watching. See, Jesus was very aware of who his audience was. He was very aware that there were those ears who were listening to whether he really was the Son of God or not. I would say to you, who's watching your life? Sure, they hear you talk about Jesus being the Son of God. Sure, they hear you talk about how he saved you, but they, can they actually see that in your life? Or are they seeing something different? I told you in the beginning, we do far more harm to the kingdom of God outside of the church walls than we do inside the church walls. But you know what the opposite of that is? We can do a lot more benefit for the kingdom of God outside the church walls than we can inside the church walls as well. We can make a greater impact outside if we would simply live like Christians. If we would simply lean into who God is and say, I want God to be in every part of my life, all of a sudden something changes and we follow after him. Now, I don't know how you learned to worship or maybe you're early in your journey and you don't know how to worship yet. I can tell you how I learned. I learned by watching other people. I learned by showing up at church and watching what the adults were doing and what they did, I did. I learned by leaning into things that look like good things, and I learned that, that if this was going to work, then I was going to have to figure it out. At our church, we have a, a younger, very young worship team. A few Sundays ago, I was standing in our sanctuary as they were leading worship, and I looked up at the stage, and I recognized that almost every person on that, that platform at our church had come through my kids' ministry. Almost every one of them. And I looked at them and I, something just snapped inside of my heart and God got my attention. And I recognized that if I hadn't done what I was supposed to do when they were eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, when they came into, we call ours Creek Kids, when they came into Creek Kids and I would tell them, all right, it's time to worship, you're gonna stand up, you're gonna sing, 
You're going to lift your hands. We're going to do actions. Yeah, we're going to do all that stuff. And we, would, we always did the same thing. We do two really fast songs, lots of fun actions. And then the third song, I would say, just stand still and praise God. And it'd be a slower song. It'd be a worship song. And I would just tell the kids, just sing the song to God. Close your eyes if you need to, if you need to block everyone out. But I recognized it. I said, man, if I hadn't gotten it right when they were eight years old and nine years old, who would be the worship team today? Who would be up there? I can tell you that when I was a children's pastor, I wasn't planning for the next generation of our church by making them worship to one song every Sunday. I was just trying to do what God had told me to do. But you know what they learned? They learned how to follow Jesus. They learned to lean into him. So my question to you is, who is watching you and have you shown them the right things? I don't want my kids to do things that are vaguely religious because they're religious. That's what the Pharisees wanted. That's what the, Pharise- the Pharisees wanted them to do religious things because they were religious, because they could feel good in front of other people. I want my kids and those kids that are coming behind me, the young pastors that are coming behind me, I want them to understand that they have been given a great gift in watching the previous generation try to worship Jesus. But here's the problem. If the previous generation chooses to observe and chooses to disengage, then you are robbing the next generation of the ability to see a model of what it means to follow Jesus. If you come into church tired and feeling like, well, the whole world is on my shoulders, I'm just going to sit here and put my head down and hang my head, you're robbing the next generation of what it means to have the joy of God in their hearts. Now, it's easy in our American culture to feel like the the woe is me and I'm the center of the universe and everything is about me, 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 me. But the more you read this Bible, the more you're going to understand it's not about me, it's about God. And if God has called me to be a thermostat, to engage in worship, even when I don't want to engage in worship, then I'm giving the next generation a massive gift, something that they can't give for themselves. I'll close this with, with a final story. Worship team, you're welcome to come. When I was in third grade Sunday school class, I had, a, I had a teacher. It was a husband and wife that taught our third grade class together. The wife's name was Josie Lemus. Josie and Jimmy. And Jimmy was a little bit hard to understand. He had a really thick accent. He was hard to understand. And sometimes Josie would get excited. She was a little bit hard to understand too. But as a third grader, I would show up to her Sunday school class every Sunday. And you may be thinking of Sunday school, like, you know, you sit at the table, you color with crayons, you do that kind of stuff. Josie's class was a little bit different. We would come in and she would have the, t- the chairs set up, all the metal chairs set up in a little semicircle around a whiteboard. And we would go sit at the semicircle. And then she would tell us, it's time for a prayer request. Tell us what you want to pray for. And after we did prayer requests, and she would say, it's time to sing, stand up. She didn't ask us to stand up. She told us, stand up. We would stand up and she would say, okay, we're going to sing a song. When the song starts, lift your hands, close your eyes, and sing it to Jesus. And she would start playing a song, and she had an old cassette player. She'd put the cassette in, and she would hit play. And I know it was an old cassette player because of the noise it would make when it started, because it wouldn't just start playing the music. It'd be like, then it's play the music, right? It was an old cassette player. She'd start playing it. I still remember the song. You guys may know this song. It, it took me a while to pick up on it when I was a third grader. It says, you feed me at your banqueting table, your banner over me is love. His banner over me is love. As a third grader, I had no clue what those words meant. (laughs) 
I didn't know. I'm like, what is Jesus doing throwing a, a party at a big old table? And he has like a ribbon above our heads that says ban love over it. I don't know what this is about. Maybe he's wrapping us in banners. I don't know. But Josie told us, you're going to stand up, you're going to lift your hands, and you're going to sing to Jesus. So for two years, every Sunday, I walked in, I stood up, I closed my eyes, and I sang to Jesus. Did I enjoy it every Sunday? Nope. Did I want to do it every Sunday? Nope. But you know what? I was more scared of Josie than I was of myself. So I was going to do it. But what happened was every Sunday that we did it, it felt a little more natural, and it felt a little more natural, and it felt a little more natural, until one day... I was ready to stand up before she said stand up. And I was ready to lift my hands before she told me it was time to lift my hands. And that's when worship became a lifestyle and not just an act or a song or something like that. You know, I wonder, I wonder where the leaders of worship are today. Not worship leaders, you guys got that. You got worship leaders. Where are the leaders of worship? The people that will stand in auditoriums and sanctuaries across our nation and lift their hands even when they don't want to lift their hands and praise God even when they won't, don't want to lift, praise God because they recognize that it's not about me, it's about Jesus. See, if worship was about making me feel better, man, it's not doing its job. But if worship is about making God the king, lifting up the king who's over us, then I think we owe it to him. I think we owe it to him. You stand with me this morning. Your worship team is going to play here in just a minute. I want to invite you to lead with your leaders, with your pastors, with your staff, with your board members. I'm going to invite you to lead with them in the next few minutes. As they play some worship music, I want you to choose to be a thermostat this morning. I'm going to pray for you, and then they're going to play. And it's going to take some uncomfortable, maybe. It may not feel great the first time, but I'm going to invite you to lead. Because there are people watching not only in this room, but there's people watching outside of this room. And if we don't get it right in here, it's never going to be right out there. So will you, for the next few minutes, set aside your desires, set aside the things that you want, and choose to praise Jesus for just a few minutes. You made it to the end of the message, and now what? Is God leading you to make a change? Are you needing a good church home where you can grow and help others grow as you fulfill your part in the body of Christ? Then we invite you to join us at All Nations Church on Sharer Road in Tallahassee, a multicultural church founded on the truth of God's Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Sunday morning service is at 1030 and Wednesday night service at 7, plus youth group and kid power and small groups and more. For more information, visit our website, allnationstallahassee.com.